Okay, so let's begin. Mm -hmm. Hi, welcome to my channel. My name is Lisa Allistway, and I create inspirational and informational videos you can use and apply to your life. Today's guest is Tammy Peterson. You may recognize her or know her as the wife of Dr. Jordan Peterson, but Tammy is also a mother, a grandmother, an artist, and an inspiration to many. Her story is unique, powerful, and full of life lessons. Welcome, Tammy. Thank you very much, Lisa. It's good to be here. Good to have you. Um, so those that may not know, uh, Tammy was diagnosed with a terminal illness and given less than a year to live, but her doctors were wrong and she miraculously recovered. Uh, Tammy, would you mind sharing a little bit about that situation and also your mindset as you went through it? Sure, sure. I'd be happy to. Um, talking about this has been very helpful to me. I think, talk, you know, it's been long enough now in the past that I can talk about it. And talking about things like this, if they're far enough away from when they happened and they don't trigger you feeling uh, unstable is a very good practice. So yes. and it's good to talk about it. Um, so I was first diagnosed with renal cell carcinoma, which they told me was not something that was going to kill me, that it grew one millimeter a year. And so they said, you don't have to rush into the hospital for a surgery. You can take your time. And so we did. We were on a book tour and we went to Australia before we decided to come back and have my surgery. And um, the surgery was a partial nephrectomy. And it went fine. Six weeks later, I was strong and walking and, and healthy, I thought. But then when we went to the uh, appointment with the surgeon, they had done a biopsy and verified that, in fact, it was a Bellini tumor. And a Bellini tumor um, usually will metastasize so quickly that it kills you without knowing that you have it. Because I, I really didn't have... I had a bit of a symptom when I was recovering from my partial nephrectomy. I had some flank pain mm -hmm. on my left side. And that is an indication that you have a Bellini tumor. It's very subtle though. You know, I just had, yeah. it could have been a muscle, mus muscular pain. It didn't really feel like muscular pain, but I didn't know what it was. Anyway, that um, alerted them to the fact that there had been, um, in the first biopsy I had, there was some idea that there was a little indication that it might have been a Bellini tumor, but I guess that wasn't taken as for sure until they'd done the operation and done a second biopsy, but then they were sure. So at my six week appointment, I went in with my husband, we were all ready to hear the good news. And as it turned out, we didn't have any good news. And this, the surgeon was so shaken. He was uh, shaking and he was, um, you know, when you don't want to tell, I can't imagine what it's like to tell people and to see the disbelief and uh, horror on their faces when they realize that they've been told that their, you know, their wife's life is over or their life is over. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we signed all the forms that we had to sign and we left and I reflected right away and I thought, you know, I've lived this life. I'm 57 years old. That's kind of young, but I do know I have had 
family members, aunts and uncles who've passed away young, I guess maybe I'm going to join them, you know, and mm -hmm. I just, and I made that decision that that was okay with me. And uh, only a few minutes later, when we drove home and I told my son and his wife, I saw the pain on their faces and recognized that, recognized the profundity of the situation um, that I couldn't, that I couldn't face on my own, I don't think. I, I don't think I could really, until I saw it on their faces, it wasn't, it, it didn't have the same impact as when I heard for myself. Because mm -hmm. I've always been a very independent person. I've always um, done well on my own with all my decisions. Um, but I did have a, a tendency to keep things to myself to keep my problems to myself, mm -hmm. to um, if I was ha having something that I had to work through, I would work through it. And then I would tell people once I'd worked through it. And I felt that that was a reasonable thing to do. But during this whole health crisis, I learned otherwise that that, that isn't um, a reasonable way forward, that you need support and you need uh, to open your heart to uh, a higher power, you have to be open and humble and mm. go forward in that respect. And I hadn't realized that that's not what I was doing before. Mm -hmm. So it, it was almost a very, um, it was a, an insightful moment when yeah. I told my son, um, uh, you know, it really turned my perception around Mm -hmm. in in the moment I all of a sudden realized this is not I'm not seeing the world properly at all and um, I always thought that I was in service you know I was helping my husband um, I, I thought that I was making good choices and I imagined that I was doing the best I could there's no doubt about that I, I was doing the best I could but just at this moment I had a new understanding that was more profound that we aren't here at all for ourselves, that we are here to be of service to those people around us and whatever we see has to be done. Now, there is also, there is also ourselves and we are one of those other people, you know? And, yes. and so we have to take that person who we are the essence of us, the divine side of us, seriously, too. Mm -hmm. But the other side of us, the ego side of us, that's the part of us that sometimes gets control when we're afraid or when we're angry or, you know, when we have um, things that make us uncomfortable, then if we're not in that divinity, in that side of divinity where we can let the the circumstances show themselves so that we get a good understanding from every angle we sometimes take control and try to force a direction and hope that and believe that sometimes in our arrogance that we have the answers mm -hmm. and at at that moment i realized i did not have the answers i obviously i didn't have the answers and i didn't know who did the only person I figured out who did was the essence of humanity, which would be 
translated to God, you know, so I, I was really all of a sudden putting my putting all my faith, I was putting myself in God's hands at that point. And that was a new and uh, profound realization for me, even though uh, my mother, my mother was raised uh, in a in a fairly religious home, my grandmother was religious, but she had been raised as a Catholic and she uh, somehow I don't know the story changed us to Protestants. Mm. And so, um, you know, there was some there was some discontent somehow I, I don't know exactly the story of that. And my grandmother on my father's side was Protestant. And she was she was a lovely caring person. But there was and, and she played the piano in the church. Uh, and she played the piano at my wedding and she was always gently religious as far as I knew. Mm -hmm. And so I did get some guidance in that direction. And I went to Sunday school as a small child, but I left the church probably about when I was 13, when I started studying yoga. So mm -hmm. I, so I had that spiritual, um, practice mm -hmm. and it, I did practice every day until I was about 26 and then I started doing kundalini yoga and kundalini yoga then is a much more spiritual practice. I did that every day until I was diagnosed really. But at that point, my Christianity seemed to be what uh, came up as the bedrock beneath me. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, that is what I began with in the beginning. And that is what is the heritage of, of my family and the ancestry of my family is is Christianity, and so when it really when when the rubber hit the road, I think that that's what I went back to. Uh, I it was a, it was the most profound and the mm -hmm. most. Um, it wasn't that I had studied it and understood it even. It was just that I don't know. It was just there. It mm -hmm. was just there. I can't really explain it. So. Then I went, you know, I went on, I accepted any help that came my way. My sister-in-law was a nurse. She came to stay with us before I had my surgery. My sister is a nurse. She came to stay with me. And these people are, are, are on the other side of, of North America. They came, they mm. gave up their lives for a bit and came and took care of me for a week or two at a time. And my husband's mother came. Uh, she actually spent, she's retired. She spent quite a bit of time with us. And that was really lovely. So even though they were here for a really horrifying and harrowing time, the time that we spent together as families was so precious. It was mm -hmm. something that I can remember fondly, really. And I do feel that what I've gone through was a gift, even though mm -hmm. it was a, it, even though it may have killed me. Yeah. When you uh, say gift, do you mean because of the lessons you learned that you might yes. not have otherwise? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I think my, my opinion is that God gives us lessons to learn from, and sometimes those lessons kill us. And so we have to be, it's hard to be that humble to accept that that is the outcome, but we have no control over outcomes. We only have we only have control over ourselves and what we decide to pay attention to or not, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I, I became more aware of that. And after I'd had my second surgery, and that seemed to go very well, 
they got the cancer. There was no chemotherapy or no radiation offered because the kind of cancer it is, they haven't found anything else that helps. Uh, it's such an aggressive cancer that, um, that you have to take it out and then you hope for the best. Mm. Um, I did a, I did a two hour meditation the night before my surgery and I looked at the cancer in my mind. You know, I, I went down to my kidney and I asked it to show me what was going on. And I saw cells that were turned away from me. Mm. Metaphorically, they were black. They were turned away like a black hole. I thought I felt like, and I felt like if something has turned away so much that it is a black hole, if it's no longer with you, then it is not, then I'm not enough to bring it back. I'm not enough to bring those cells back. So the best thing to do is to give them away. And so I gave them away to the universe. And I thought that would be the only place I could place them that wouldn't be destructive. And who knows what black holes are? We'd, I don't know. Um, anyway, that's what I did the night before. And that calmed us down. We had a good night's sleep. I went into surgery the next day. I told the surgeon what I'd done the night before to calm myself down. He said they used the same intention as they went through. They said everything came out with no trouble. But then a few weeks later, my limbs started to swell because they had taken out all my lymph because the cancer had gone into the lymph gland. And uh, they took all my lymph in my kidney. And, you know, when I was young, I remember you'd hear someone had cancer. And if they said, oh, it's in the lymph, oh, it's in the lymph, they're going to die. You know, we used to just think of it as a death sentence as soon as it went into the lymph. But that's not the case anymore. Um, there's uh, interventional radiology is a field where there are brilliant uh, doctors who can look at the lymph system and the lymph system is like a spider web inside you, you know, and there's no pump, there's no heart. It just goes along beside the blood vessels. And as you move the waste products that are put into the lymph to be recycled back through the body, they do so because you move. And when people don't move, then you start to get swelling in the legs. That's all lymph. That's all lymph that's not being brought back to the heart, right? So I was having an accumulation of lymph in my feet and then in my legs. Uh, my genitals swole up. That was an, uh, something I'd never seen before and never thought would happen. But obviously, if your body is filling with fluids, it's going to fill every cell. And then my, and then my abdomen started to swell. And we, we called the hospital. We talked to them, but they said, you know, you've had radical surgery and you may have some swelling. And so we thought, oh, okay, but it seems kind of extreme. But on my six-week checkup for that one, I went into the hospital and he sent me into emergency because mm -hmm. I had um, I had a, an acetes, uh, achylus acetes, and that is when the lymph has a... So they tied up all the little loose ends of the lymph on that side. It looked like they were it looked like they were bobby pins when when I saw them on the scan holding, mm. but there are so many that they missed one. Probably it was a very small leak because they never could find it. So it must have been a teeny tiny little leak because no matter how many scans they did and in how many ways they scanned, they couldn't find the leak. I was in the hospital uh, eventually that, you know, they told me to go home and eat a non-fat diet because sometimes if you eat a non-fat diet, your lymph will not be working and then scar tissue will close up. 
and but that didn't that didn't work i kept losing weight a nurse was coming every day and taking a liter of fluid off me which didn't even make me comfortable i think i was i think i was losing about a gallon a day so it was all my fluids which meant that my mind was not very clear as well and the right around um canada day july of of 2019 I was with my son and his wife and they were taking my blood pressure and they couldn't get any blood pressure. And so they went out and they got another blood pressure cuff and they, but you know, I mean, they were just worried, but they didn't know what to do. Uh, my surgeon had been really good ever since the surgery. He saw me every week. And so I went in for my weekly and he put me back in the hospital again. This time uh, my electrolytes had gone out of balance. I'd lost 30 or 40 pounds. Uh, I'd lost my cheeks. I'd lost any, uh, tissue that you would have that's not skeletal your body uh, fat I had lost it all I lost mm -hmm. my my bum my breasts my cheeks everything and uh, and I wasn't thinking very clearly anyway my son and, and his wife helped me get to the hospital uh, my husband was out of town and it was he went he went somewhere to a, a meeting and he was all, you know, com completely, he went to a meeting. I don't know how he did it with me feeling the way I was, but he found a very uh, lovely family who said that if I had to go anywhere in the States for an intervention, that they would provide their private jet. Wow. Was not ever nice. And so he came back from there and I was in the hospital mm -hmm. I had been put in ICU because my electrolytes were out of balance and I was going to have a heart attack. So I had, it was coming down to, you know, I wasn't going to last any longer, but they got me in the hospital. Uh, they put me on a heart monitor and they put fluids back in me. And then eventually they put nutrition in my heart. They put a, they put a, um, a pick line near your heart and then they, uh, put nutrition straight into your heart. And so three days after that, I woke up and realized where I was mm. and what had happened. I vaguely knew what was happening. It wasn't like I wasn't there, but I was, and I didn't even know that I was as out of it as I was. It, I just wasn't aware, you know? Mm -hmm. So then once I was aware, it, uh, I felt much better. Um, they put me in a private room, which I realized was not a good sign because when you've gotten into a private room, they don't know what to do with you anymore. Mm. If you're in a room with a bunch of people, they know you're in there and out. It's a good place to be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now I now I know that. <laughs> Never complain about being, you know, put in room busy rooms anymore. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I had a very nice room, and there was a beautiful four-story atrium beside my room that I looked down into with lots of plants and uh, places for people to go places for staff to have their lunch but places for patients to walk around and have a feeling of being out of doors if they mm -hmm. weren't well enough to go out of doors uh, and so that's the first place I went I eventually took my IV pool and my uh, my um, fluid bag out and walked around the blocks I was trying to get mm -hmm. my strength back and it was hot hot summer and I had on a wool hat and and cashmere pants and you know my my house coat and I slept at night with a wool hat cashmere pants on um, wool socks uh, a hot water bottle and a big quilt that was put on top of me because I'd lost all my body fat 
And when you lose all your body fat, I had no heat left in Mm -hmm. my body and I just froze. And that was the symptom that was so terrible was I just was freezing all the time. Mm -hmm. So you see pictures of me in the summer with my red wool hat on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right until the end. Anyway, I was there and a really lovely um, Catholic woman who we've known um, as uh, uh, an acquaintance. She came and brought me a rosary and I prayed the rosary every day with her in this atrium. And she came at 10 o'clock in the morning and we'd go down to the atrium and I would sit for her with her for two hours. She, she gave two hours of every day. Uh, I prayed and told her my life story and cried. Hmm. And that was good. It was like <laughs> a I release. Learned, it really was. It was a therapy. You know, it was really good confession every day, really was what it was it felt that's what it felt like and uh after five weeks they had scanned me like endlessly they'd been giving me albumin because i had no protein in my blood like i was just uh having a terrible time and then they started looking at interventional radiology and they were suggesting that i have um someone look at me and see if they could block the the leak and the fellow who was in at the uh, Toronto Western Hospital was a great doctor. He was trained in Pennsylvania and he suggested that we go down to Pennsylvania where they have MRI guided scan and they don't have those kind of scans. They have CT scans, but an MRI guided scan, then they might be able to see the leak. And because we had this jet and because we had Mm. some money off, we went, we went down there and my husband went with me, my son and his daughter and my, uh, my uh, sister-in-law, her two kids, and my mother-in-law. Wow. Wow. The whole family. (laughs) It was very nice. It was very nice. And they rented an Airbnb, and I went into the hospital. And uh, they did the procedure, which was an amazing procedure. I could see it on the screen, but they couldn't find the leak. Mm -hmm. And before I had left, before I had left to go to Pennsylvania, my friend, Queenie, Queenie is her name, the, the Catholic woman, uh, she also was working. She's a member of U of T. She um, is sits. She lives in a, a Kintour College, and it it's a women's uh, residence. But they have programming, and they have meals together every evening, and they have a chapel, and they have a priest. And oh, that wow. priest came and gave, blessed me the night before mm-hmm. I went and told me to pray on gratitude and he gave me um, a saint jose maria novena for the ill and there are nine days of prayer in there if you're very sick and so i was praying those daily and on the fifth day after the surgery where they couldn't find the leak uh, my leak closed and yeah and they said that now and then because they use poppy seed oil to bring the dye in to find the leak because they look on the MRI and see a plume if they find the leak. Um, the poppy seed sometimes is irritating to the lymph system. Hmm. And if it's irritating, then maybe it'll irritate enough that the body will try to close the leak. And it did. Wow. So I think that's what happened. Um, it was a miracle. Uh, I had told my husband probably in June, because I knew that I was going to live by then. 
I just didn't know how I was going to live. And they told me I might have a, uh, a tube that would go from my, my belly to my heart that I would mm. live, but it would be a compromised life. Mm. Um, but I told him that I would be well by August 19th, which was our 30th anniversary. Oh, and that was the day I was well. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, um, it was amazing. I'm, yeah. I'm really curious about, um, you know, the original doctor telling you, you had less than a year to live. And then these events and circumstances happened. What was your conversation with him like today? Yes, that's a good, that's a good, uh, <laughs> good question. You know, he followed me so carefully. As I said, I had weekly meetings with him from the time he found out that I had this complication. And it wasn't that he was going to, he was a surgeon. He wasn't going to help me with a lymph problem, but he had me come into his office every week and met with me, checked my blood pressure and, you know, and sometimes put me in the hospital. So he, he was the front man and he visited me always in the hospital. Sometimes he came and visited me after surgery at 1030 at night. He'd come in mm -hmm. in his scrubs and say hello. And it, he was a remarkable person that he cared so much, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Even though he couldn't do anything, he, he was so caring. Yeah. And it, it was beautiful to have that care. Um, you know, I went back to, and the nurses on the ward too, I, I was there for five weeks. I really got to know them. And uh, the care was great. And uh, <laughs> it was <laughs> funny because there was this one male nurse and he seemed very shy to come in my room. And I didn't know why. And he kind of had a look on his face that was, I don't know. I didn't know what it was. It seemed like disdain or something. And I didn't know what was going on. Anyway, as you know, the nurses are exchanging and stuff. One day he had to come into my room or he was, you know, found out he was a fan of my husband's and he was too shy to come into my room. <laughs> <laughs> he was too shy. But he told me about, some clothing that's very comfortable that's um, sometimes one piece pieces of clothing that his wife wore when she was having babies and he suggested that I get some of that mm -hmm. he was they were just very very sweet you know I bought them all flowers and and uh, fruit and stuff when I left and I came back to visit uh, but then COVID has happened and you know you don't have any access to the hospital but once I do have access to the hospitals, I'd really like to go back and see them all uh, and and visit and share how well I'm doing because, you know, they always wondered if I was going to get well or not. Yes. And because I did, uh, I, I'd be happy to go back. And I've, I've also thought of uh, going once the hospitals are open, uh, going volunteering in um some hospices and uh, so I'll, I'll look into that as the world comes back to normality mm -hmm. yeah oh, very cool uh your story is definitely one of resilience and i was wondering if we could maybe touch on this topic a little bit how do you define resilience how do i define resilience i think that um giving up control gives you resilience i uh, i i believe that uh, I have to, uh, I pray every morning. I meditate every morning after I pray. I ask for God's will when, I, when I'm meditating. And then whatever comes my way during the day, 
I, I face as a challenge from God, as a challenge for me to be a better person and maybe be helpful to someone, you know? So that, that puts me in a position to see miracles. I see miracles during mm -hmm. the day because I'm not trying to be the person in control. I'm opening the door for miracles to happen. And it's a, it's a radical way to live because, because uh, I have to be so mindful all the time. Mm -hmm. But I did spend many, many years doing yoga and meditating. And so I had practiced that. Oh, no, no, not to that extent. And I didn't understand it to that extent. But now I understand it better. And I, I think the resilience comes from uh, accepting help because we can't do these things on our own. Thinking yep. that you can do things are, on your own means that you're going to, uh, I mean, just even living on your own, eating on your, on your own is a difficult thing. So uh, let alone when you're, when you're ill. Mm -hmm. So it, it's a very, you know, it's better to go out and eat in the park with the squirrels and the birds than it is to eat alone in your house, you know? Good point. Yeah, it is, because then you're sharing. You don't have mm -hmm. to give the, the animals any food, but just to be there and aware of them is, I don't know, it's, a, it's, it's something. A connection to, be, to nature. Yeah, and to be uh, aware of the trees that are shading you, and, and everything, you know, to be aware like that gives you resilience because then you're not alone. You're never alone. That's the thing. You are never, people don't have to be alone. And right. it's, a, it's a really, I think it's a, oh, it's a real gift to find that out that you never have to be alone. Um, but it takes, uh, it takes, you know, it takes faith to, it takes faith to admit that you can be humble and allow this um, essence of life to be with you all the time. Uh, mm -hmm. it, you know, it's a very different way rather than, you know, there's goal setting. You can set goals for the future. Yeah. Um, but day to day, day to day, every, tw you know, every 24 hours, one day at a time, you live with this essence and this intention of uh of spreading a word of service and also doing service to yourself and making sure that when you get up in the day you attend to what might be most important and do those things that are that are important and when i pray and i meditate sometimes i i can i can distill the wheat from the chaff i can find out what i'm worried about uh, and maybe not able to change and recognize those things I can do mm -hmm. and do and do those instead. And, and the things you can't change, you can always ask for help, you know, and you can always help. Yes, you can help. ask definitely ask for help for those things because they're beyond you. So there's no yeah. sense think, thinking that you're in control of those things. Yes. Well, you know, life is tough and we're all faced with adversity. It doesn't discriminate. And I think whenever we're hit with something traumatic, um, we might ask the question, why, why me? You know, mm -hmm. we might feel like so alone that this is only happening to me. Um, and I think if you're going to really exercise your resilience muscle, you have to kind of remember, you know, why not me? This, this is, 
universal, this human experience and adversity and things that we go through. When I was 13 and I started doing yoga, I thought I'm going to need this when I'm old. That's, that was what I thought. So I'm going to do it every day. I don't need it now. You know, I'm a, I'm a very healthy, active person. Uh, I don't feel I need it now, but the practice is what I, I don't know why I knew that it was, that was a gift to, to know that, that I needed spirituality, that this would be you know, I guess my grandmothers, they lived to be quite old. My mom, my grandmother on my dad's side died at 93. My grandmother died at 98. I think she was 98. And she was a very philosophical person. And uh, so, you know, whenever you met with her, although it was lovely and fun, it was spiritual always. So I think I must have inherited that from her that awareness of, of spirituality and necessity of having a spiritual life. And mm -hmm. uh, my, my aunt who introduced me to yoga, um, I was, she passed away. Uh, her husband had worked with in construction and had worked with asbestos and mm -hmm. she had washed his clothes and both of them died from lung cancer from asbestos poisoning. Wow. wow. Yeah. So mm. whenever I see asbestos, I run. <laughs> yes <laughs> we should we should all run but some yes. of us are more uh, susceptible to those mm -hmm. problems than she was but when she passed away she gave my cousin uh, a book of miracles when she and so she knew and she knew to give to my my cousin that she knew that you know also she'd given us yoga she gave her daughter the book of miracles so she was handing over what her mother had taught her and she handed it to me through yoga. And oh. I, I, I really think that opened my eyes. And, uh, but, but because it's a custom that's from another country and mm -hmm. another religion, mm -hmm. although, although I can really, uh, I can really learn a lot. Um, I can get something more profound from my own religion i learned that that's mm. good that you, you got that foundation at a young age and it kind yeah. of planted the seed so that when you really were hit with like basically death's door you went back to your foundations they or they came back to you um yes they came back to me i opened myself to them and they were there yeah because mm -hmm. they're always there all we have to do is open ourselves to them they're there yes um, I have another question about resilience and relationships, because like you mentioned, this isn't just about you and you couldn't have gone through this just by yourself. And the people around you also had to practice a level of resilience. Um, and so can you speak a little bit on the importance of the resilience and building those resilient, resilient relationships? It was, it was uh, quite magical, actually, because I was really steeped in my faith by the time I was in the hospital and, and going further, but mostly, you know, I mean, it's still pretty profound. I still live this way. My dad still asks me if, if that's where I am. And I say, yes, that's where I am. But uh, my father and my husband's father, who, uh, who are thoughtful people, but not religious people, they were praying, you know, my my mother-in-law uh she has always sung in the church she she has faith but she was really praying 
everybody was praying. Every, you know, it really, it turned around into everyone praying. And now when one of our friends faces something, so we have some friends that are facing something and um, they said they went into the hospital and they thought they saw me there and they knew that I was there with them. And uh, so I'm praying for them and uh, my sister-in-law, who's very good friends with them too, she's praying for them always. And we have a little chat group where we, you know, we check in. And so this resilience that in, in sharing and be, belonging is translating, you know, my, uh, my sister, my dad is 90. And so he's becoming frail. And mm. my sister, she's a nurse. She lived in a big city and moved to the little city that he lives in. And so now she's close and she can take care of him. And then I have another sister, she's older. And unfortunately she's suffering from dementia, the same thing that my mother died from. Mm. And she's only 67 and she needs care. Wow. And so my other sister is doing both of those. And she's talking to me all the time about how to do this and not, not get uh, swallowed by it not 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 be responsible for them yeah. but to lend a hand wherever she can mm -hmm. and and that i'm so grateful that i have learned what i've learned so that i can pass it on to the people i know uh my sister-in-law too you know and and to help her with her marriage and her teenage kids that are growing up and stuff knowing that you know we are um we have our faith we have our understanding, but to leave people to their lives, uh, because if you try to control other people, they don't have a chance to grow and become strong and courageous. Because if you are too much in their lives, they don't get to learn the lessons. They don't get to bump into life like you right. have to in order to uh, be a more mature person. Right. And so you can do that with your you can do that with your children, but you can do it with your spouse. You know, you can, you can be too helpful yeah. and then, and too, and all of these things are kind, but if you all of a sudden get sick, where does that leave them? They don't, right. they don't know where anything is or, and it's stressful enough to be with someone who's ill, but to also feel like you're not adequate because you've been put in a situation where you can't take, you know, take up the reins. Mm -hmm. that that that's not good so we do have to give each other for resiliency you have to let people uh go you have to let them run into life even though uh it can really be um you can get you, they can get to death's door but and all but all you can do is be of service to them and to do what you can that's in your uh domain and let them find their way with yes. whatever you know whatever resources they will find yes and i think that's what builds re resilience absolutely i always think about um you want to have a sense of control and you want to be in the driver's seat and you don't want to take that away from somebody because it's their experience to have that and exactly yeah i think that's key um i think another key thing about resilience which you touched on was um being able to focus your attention especially during those difficult times. And one of the things you had mentioned, you had, you do gratitude exercises every day. And that's, I think a key thing because we can go down that 
negative road that could be our default very easily if we're not careful. And we have to like have bring that attention back to, well, what's good now, you know? Absolutely. You know, in my rosary uh, prayers uh, every, you know, every day there's a, there's a, a a certain intention. um, And then I will think about, okay, what do, who do I want to pray for? So do I want to pray for the doctors of the world? Do I want to pray for the uh, ill people in the world, the governments, the elderly, the young families, you know, so I have different, and, and usually sometimes I'll think of my family. I'll think maybe of my son and his wife and his little kid. Then I'll, I'll pray for all, I'll pray for all young families. You know, I, I think of my father, I pray for all elderly people. And so I, that's, that's really helpful to get you into gratitude. But mm-hmm. um, I also have found that if I'm stuck, you know, so I have uh, uh, someone who I've been uh, communicating with, and we come to something that causes some discontent. And then we're stuck in a place where maybe there's anger or, uh, or hurtful feelings happening, you know, uh, then I write a gratitude list for that person. You know, first of all, I, I tell my higher power, I'm willing, I, I'm willing, I want to give whatever it is I'm feeling up. But if I write a gratitude list for them, then I can see them as a whole person and not just this uh, very narrow window that I'm seeing them as what is hurting me about that person, you know, yeah. but if I can, if I can, then I can uh, make it bigger and ro- more robust, because I'm thinking of them in their entirety, by by maybe I can list uh, all their positive uh, personalities. I can list all the pos- positive personality attributes for mm-hmm. this person, or which is really helpful. I find that that was, you know, my mom has passed away, uh, and my father is very elderly. But I thought, you know, um, they've always been my mom and dad. But if I can, so I wrote a list. I wrote a list of the positive personality attributes of both my mom and my dad. And it broadened my uh, gratitude and my, it it broadened my love for them because Mm -hmm. they were enriched by being recognized for more completely who they are. Mm -hmm. And so that is a super practice. I find it, uh, if you're resentful about someone and you write a gratitude list for them, the, the resentment can, will be, you know, diminished, diminished mm-hmm. and, and hopefully dissipate. If you focus on that gratitude and of that other person, I think it can, you can completely let it go. Mm, that's really good. That's yes. A very, very good tip. Um, yes. So we're talking like about resilience at the individual level. And then, um, you know, there's an impact of building resilience in your family unit, but also in your community. What would you give as far as maybe ways that we could build a more resilient community? Well, hmm, okay, that's a good question. I haven't been asked that one before. Um, so, it, you know, it's very similar to your family. So if you're, uh, if you're giving service to your family, uh, answering, you know, whatever it is that comes up, if you can do it, then you do it. Uh, the same thing can happen in your community. You can be there uh, for service to your community and you can recognize that if something is needed, let's say there's, 
let's say there's, you know, garbage on the street or in the park, or, you know, that's something simple. Uh, you can pick it up. That's service. It's a good mm -hmm. service. Mm -hmm. You know, if somebody is uh, walking down the street and they have way too many packages, you can ask if you can help carry their packages. They don't, you know, they, and uh, even if they don't want you to, they'll really be pr pretty pleased that you asked them. So it's a really good gesture. So even, you know, even if you can't do service, if you can actually, if you can't do service for other people, you can do other service, you can do service for your uh, surroundings. And you can start with surroundings if you're shy. So you can, if you're shy, then you can do things like, uh, you know, uh, rake leaves or pick up garbage or tidy the playground, you know, put, put all the little toys in a row or something, but you can do those sorts of things. And those things will bring you community. If you do mm -hmm. those things, they'll, it'll bring you community because people will notice. They'll notice that you're doing something that's kind and generous and thoughtful. Mm -hmm. And that takes away fear. And so if people are afraid to uh, reach out, then there's going to be more reaching out when you start to engage in your community. Now, once you are somebody who's um, once you're somebody who's engaged with their community, then the idea is to decide what it is you want to do and say yes to it and do it, whether you're afraid or not. And, and leave it up to God because it'll work out how it's supposed to work out if you aren't trying to take too much control. Mm -hmm. And, and through that service, you can always help somebody learn something new that maybe they can pass on and help somebody else. It can have like a, right. you know, a ripple effect. Right. That's right. And you know, children will watch you. And so, yeah, because if, if children see other people tidying up, they they'll, they'll tidy up too. They want to know what to do in the world. And the only way they know is with uh, imitation, you know, when they're quite young, they look to see what other people are doing and then they, they do that too. And that's right. what they learn. Right. Yes. yes. We're definitely a role model to children, especially how we role model resilience. So yes. it behooves us to learn some of these skills and have them in our toolbox um, so that when those hard times come, we can have a more positive outcome with our reactions. Yes. Absolutely. So yeah, we don't want to put ourselves in a place where we feel that we've become isolated. Mm -hmm. And and we have no, um, no way to be a useful person in society. That's not, that's not a something that will uh, increase your immune system and, and, and give you resiliency to, and we have to also get outside, right? We've learned this with with what we've gone through with the uh, pandemic this time mm -hmm. is that that if you stay inside the air quality inside isn't what the air quality is outside it's best to be outside so mm -hmm. whenever whenever people are feeling like they're isolated it's best to go outside and say hello yes, yes. say hello right? yes it's so funny because i grew up in a little town in western canada where everybody said hello everybody, mm -hmm. you know, you, mm -hmm. and then I moved to the big city where nobody said hello, but I've, al I've always, when I've been in good shape, I've always said hello. Mm -hmm. And some people will, or I smile at them. I don't always say hello, but I smile 
Mm. And some people look at you like, you know, they kind of like, what are you doing? But other people smile back and I think, oh, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And I really like that. That's really fun. Just to smile at people. I I grew up in a small town. Yeah, Yeah, I grew up in a small town. And when you drive, you got to wave. Yes. Are you past? You're waving. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, It's good. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. So I have just a couple fun questions if you're game for it. Sure. Okay. So what's your guilty pleasure? What's my guilty pleasure? Hmm. Let's see. You know, the things I like to do, I don't know if they're guilty. <laughs> I really, I really like to swim. I really like to go to the cottage. I guess that's a guilty pleasure because you like I to go like to what? The cottage. I like to go up to the cottage and be at the lake and just forget all my responsibilities and just go up there and do whatever I want and swim like six times a day and just be with the sun and, and nature. And that, you know, I, 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 I probably fantasize about being up there for all the time, you know, <laughs> Mm-hmm. When I first moved into this city, uh, I can remember it was 20, what's this? This is 2021. So it was 21 years ago when we moved here and we bought this little house that needed to be renovated. And I thought, can I live here? It was a, it was, it's a big city and we live in a semi-detached house and you're looking at the neighbors there and the neighbors there and the neighbors there and neighbors there. Mm-hmm. And I sat at my back window and I said, can I live here? And I thought, you know, if I can go out of the city on Sundays, I can live here. And so it's always been for me that I need to be out of town. Mm -hmm. When I first moved to, uh, I moved to Montreal when I was really young. And I used to walk on Mount Royal. And I imagined the sound of traffic was the sound of waterfalls. And I would just walk up there and imagine that I was away from everything. And that gave me a lot of peace of mind. And so I think my guilty pleasures are getting away from everything yes finding my peace and uh it feels a little greedy when I do that but I (laughs) really love it yeah I can relate because I live in Houston it's loud it's crowded traffic but I grew up in a small town so anytime I can get out of the city I feel more at peace yes yeah Mm -hmm. and you know there's there's parks and stuff around here but there's just something about getting out of town it's well to see the night sky you know I grew up with the night sky and uh that's how I bought this cottage I I found a cottage a teeny little cottage among other cottages there were 23 little cottages they were first built in 1920 there was a lodge built and then there were 23 tents and then over time they put platforms under the tents and then they built a little one-room bunkie of the on each platform and then eventually they put bedrooms one or two or three bedrooms on it and a little kitchenette in it and bathrooms on it but over you know at the beginning everybody ate in the lodge together and so I bought one of these little cottages and it was so nice we went up I took my husband out there up there and I said come outside it was about 9 30 at night and we go outside and we're standing a foot apart and we can't see each other and I said, remember this, because he and I are from the same little town where it's where it was so dark at night, especially in the winter, but so dark at night that you couldn't see your hands to touch anything. And we had been in the city for so many years because by then we'd already been our kids were 
uh, in 2000. So we'd been 89. We were born. So it had been 11 years. We'd been married at that point. And uh, we'd spent most of our time in the city, although we'd gone to visit his family at the lake. Our life was really in the city. And I brought him out there and I took him out and it was quiet and it was dark. And I said, remember this and looked up at the sky. I said, remember this, I want this. And so mm -hmm. then we bought a cottage. Oh, nice. that was so good. Nice, yeah. nice. Um, yeah. So I mentioned in the intro, you're an artist. <laughs> and um, so what brings your inspiration to your art? Well, that's, that's an interesting question. It's changed over the years. Um, I think that my emotional angst would, would, would inspire me. It has inspired me. Did you do um, a lot of art when you were going through the health issues? Um, what did I do? Let's see. No, I don't think so. I played cards. Okay. <laughs> I played cards. I prayed. Okay. Uh, no, I don't think so. But as soon as I was better, mm -hmm. then I did uh, daily yoga practice. I had a Zoom meeting online, so that was good. It was with other people. And uh, I began to, you know, I, I organized, a, a, I was renovating my house when I was really sick. Mm. And luckily, the people that we hired to renovate the house were really good people. And so they finished the project when we were out otherwise, you know, we were gone. So thank goodness for that, because it would have been, I wouldn't have had anything to move back into. But I had organized a place in the basement with a nice big, um, um, let's see, it was a, a desk, whoops, in a, in, a, in a small room, but I cut a hole in the wall so that I had natural light coming in. And I put really good lights up above. And I had all my art supplies there. And so I was, I was, and I, this is a little, we live in a little house. And so there's never really been a place for me to do this. Sometimes I would do art on the porch. Sometimes I'd do it in the backyard, but there just wasn't anywhere for me to just put all my stuff and leave it there, mm -hmm. you know? And so this was going to be that place. Uh, also in the basement, I have an infrared sauna. Oh, those are and great. Yes, those are great. And I have I had a, a massage table for years because I was a massage therapist. Mm. I don't have that table anymore. I have a cold laser. I do laser therapy for people uh, for um, Bioflex laser that helps people with uh, broken bones and and twisted ankles and chronic oh, wow. pains of arthritis and stuff. So it's a it's a great uh, um, it's a, a great device and it costs about the same as a massage. So it's a good option for people so I put that into my practice I still have the laser here and I had done a goal setting I had done a goal setting activity it was I think it was my was it my husband's yeah it was my husband's goal setting selfauthoring.com where I had written down my future in five years and I had thought what I would like to have is a spa you know I'd like to have I'd like to have a place where there was a lane pool and a juice bar <laughs> and massage rooms and a yoga studio and like that's what that's who I am you know that's who I am and it would be in the country you know <laughs> surrounded by and it would have a and the parking lot wouldn't be paved you know it was that was my vision but yeah. really when I go down into my basement I have an infrared sauna I have a massage room 
I have a place to do yoga on the third floor because we have an open place there. Um, I have that place here. I built that place in my home. And it was funny because I had this ideal place that I had imagined. Mm -hmm. But once, once 20 years had gone by and I looked to see if I had what I'd asked for, I had everything. The only thing I didn't have was art. Art was the other goal mm. that I, and I had never fulfilled it. So when I renovated my house, I made this place to have art and that was good. And then I, it was COVID. So I was going online and taking art classes on zoom and that was good, but, and I did well at, at, at all of that, but then, you know, you want to do the art on your own. And I walked by my office one day and I had becoming, I had been practicing being aware of all of my thoughts. And I walked by my desk and I heard my, my uh, mind say no. And I thought, oh, isn't that interesting? <laughs> I'm not letting myself sit down and do my work. Wonder what that is. So I went to my husband and I said what I had learned. And he said, well, that was really interesting. And so we made a plan that he would say in the morning, are you going to do something important? And I would say, yes. And that would mean it was my art that I was going to go do. I said, I wanted him to be supportive. I wanted, I didn't want him to tell me what to do and to mm -hmm. ask me if I was going to do a project because it's my, it's what I want to do. And I really don't like anybody else to be involved. I want it to just be me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's, I think some kind of an artist's uh, personality is somebody who's, who is uh it's a soul activity, you know, it, it makes sense because it's a creative process. You don't want yes. influence from other people because then it's not your creative process. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And so I said, if you just say, um, are you going to do something important that that that's good enough? I, I get the I get the cue from that. But from that day forward, I haven't had any trouble sitting down to it. All I had to do was become aware of the negative uh, um, self-talk that I was having uh, share it with someone I trusted to hear it in a, in a, a good, in a good spirit. And then to discuss maybe, Oops. maybe what, Oh, I'm sorry. black. <laughs> this camera sometimes goes off. Worries. It it's back. Okay. Again. <laughs> um, so to, um, Oh, now I can't remember what I was talking about, but it, it was, you were going to, uh, um, share it. Oh, not, not, not question oh, yes. yourself about it and then oh, share right. it. Yeah. So, you know what? So I got my husband to say that so that I would go down into my room. Now I could sit down at my desk and draw. I didn't have any, there wasn't any negative self-talk once, once I had shared it with someone. Yeah, that was it. Mm -hmm. Once I had shared it with someone um, and um, admitted that, you know, and I look back into my life, like, why would I be saying no? And I look back, you know, my parents were, they didn't go to university. They were self-made. My dad was uh, in insurance and he made a million dollars. You know, he was a good businessman. And my mom was a bookkeeper and, and she went to work every day. But they were very practical people. And art wasn't something that they mm -hmm. saw as a reasonable choice of life. And, and no wonder, because they always wanted us to be independent people and to have a, a bank account so that we were taken care of. And so I never really shared with them. It was difficult for me to share with them my passion for the creative 
life. And I'm a pretty open person. I mean, I thought being a bus driver would be good, but I also thought being a doctor would be good. So I was way, I was open to everything. And when you're open to everything, it's really hard to decide on one thing. That's why goal setting is good because it helps you decide on, on one thing. But, but art has been something that I've done my whole life. I, you know, I, it was, I was always really happy creating. And, mm -hmm. and so I, I knew when I was doing my goal setting and when I went to university, I, I ended up getting a kinesiology degree, but art was part of what I was interested in. I was interested in science, in teaching, in medicine, in art. And so I learned all of the anatomy when mm -hmm. I went, you know, so, and I, and I like to draw people. So it did, it, it really did help my art, but there was something about me that I had taken from my parents' point of view and not updated it to a mature point of view. I had still mm -hmm. been, you know, I still had their, um, I won't say judgment, but their, their point of view was still informing me when it shouldn't be informing me anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, so I'm grateful for everything they gave me, but that I can make my own decisions and I can make my own decisions on what, how I'm going to spend my time. Mm -hmm. And so now I can do that. So what are you painting these days? Like, what are your favorite things to well, paint? For years and years, all I did was charcoal drawings. I did charcoal drawings of people mostly. But even if I was doing, uh, I did a little bit of painting. <laughs> One summer I took a painting course when I was pregnant with my, with my daughter and it was spring and all the leaves were coming out. And for 10 years after that, I was nauseous in the spring. Because <laughs> 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 I'd just been staring at, at the landscape. So yeah. funny. That was so funny. Anyway, so I, I did like to do landscapes, but I found painting very challenging. And also I was kind of allergic to the, oil paint so mm -hmm. I stopped using oil paint and I thought maybe I could use acrylic I'd never tried watercolors so that's what I'm doing now is mm -hmm. I'm uh, investigating watercolors and I really really like what I've learned because it's uh, very open-ended watercolors you splash you wet the wet the paper splash color on it and then see what's there hmm. that's really good because often what I take is I'll take what I see and I'll put it on paper or I'll take a person and I'll, you know, I'll draw them on paper. But this is, you're splashing this color and then you're seeing, okay, what is that? Uh, oh, well, maybe that, maybe that's a stream. Oh, maybe this is where trees are. So then once it dries, you can paint in a few trees and, well, maybe there's a building back there. So then you can do a kind of a wash and make and leave where the building is. And so, and so you can just make it out of your, imagination and oh, very that's cool. I like that uh, I think I'm ready for that and I can see why people often in their older when they're older do watercolors because maybe they're just more at home with who they are and mm -hmm. then they can play like that mm. it's, it's very playful very and, cool uh, yeah so that's what I'm doing so I have one more question right. um I'd like to get your perspective on kind of this crazy journey you've been on with your husband, your daughter, and just kind of this being so publicly out there. Um, what, mm. what has been your perspective or experience about it all? Well, I think it's been a long process. So I've gone through a lot of different um, feelings and thoughts about it. Uh, when, when we were really, when it was really dire, 
and I was at home and I was feeling better and my husband was away and not feeling well at all. And we didn't know whether he was going to live. I had a lot of really, uh, I had some resentful feelings because first of all, I was left all alone. I wasn't all alone. My, my son was in the neighborhood, but my husband was gone and uh, my daughter and her husband were with him. And I didn't know what was happening day to day. You know, it was very hard to actually be in touch with what was going on. And I was afraid, right? I was afraid. And that fear uh, made me um, doubt that the decisions we'd made for his health care were good or not. It made me mm -hmm. doubt. I was fearful. And uh, I had to, uh, I had to really work on, uh, I was res resentful at my daughter. I think it was easier for me to be resentful at my daughter for going with him and taking him away than it was for me to face the painful discomfort of not knowing what was going to happen. You know, uh, mm -hmm. people, me, people will do things like that. They will, uh, when they're afraid, instead of sitting with the discomfort of, of, of the fear and just looking to uh, their higher power for comfort, uh, this idea of uh, needing control will uh, sometimes morph into anger towards someone uh, and, you know, a lashing out uh, and, and trying to find some relief that way. And I didn't want to find relief that way. So I wrote a gratitude list for her and uh, over about two weeks of, I, and I was, I was uh, out of town uh, near the ocean, walking every day, meditating on how I wanted to give this up to God. And eventually it, it did go away. But I think it was this gratitude list I told you about earlier that helped that. So once I was through that, that, that helped tremendously. Uh, then I could be more mm, grateful and also more uh, caring and uh, more in, in, in a spirit of service to whatever I could do. So supporting other family members, really, because mm -hmm. uh, in their in their resentment, because, you know, everybody was feeling this real discomfort. And so by the time he came home and he was still in uh, a lot of discomfort when he came home, um, but um, it was set up really good because he didn't come home and live with me right away. He lived in a house that was a short drive away. So I could go every day and walk with him and he could be with a nurse and, and some caretakers over at the other house. So he was safe. He was safe, but he was suffering so that, uh, and because I'd been through so much, my family didn't want me to, uh, they wanted me to keep my resilience up and they thought that it would be too much for me. And I think it would have been too much for me. I mean, I, I might've done all right, but I'm not sure I would have done all right. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm quite grateful to them that they set that up. And that was my daughter and her husband well, who, who also set that up and found people to take care of him. And uh, that way I could go every morning and have a walk with him and I could go in the evening and watch some TV with him, but I could come home and rest every mm -hmm. night. And mm -hmm. so we did that for a couple of months until he finally moved home. And now yeah. he's, now he's been home. And I think that my spiritual life has been, uh, sustaining for him. Uh, I, 
am pretty insistent that that's where I am. I don't budge. <laughs> I'm not giving it up. That is who I am. And I think that that, and I'm also, I'm also, um, I've probably in the past, I was someone who would help him for my own benefit and maybe take some of his um, independence away from him. Like, you know, when wives sometimes do that. Uh, I don't do that anymore at all. Uh, and that takes rid that gets rid of any resentment you ever might have because resentment off comes from expectations, right? So if yeah. you have expectations of other people, so if you find yourself feeling like you have an expectation, so for instance, people send him books all the time, all the time. So we have so many books and, and also there, all the different translations, they send us all those books too. And they don't oh, wow. send us one copy. They send us like six copies of a book in Polish. <laughs> I can't speak Polish. But anyway, so, but, and I've been trying to find places for all these books and everything. The yeah. I, I stopped doing that. I'm just piling the books up now. I'm piling the boxes, actually. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not doing anything with those boxes because I was finding that I was starting to resent the fact that they were coming. Well, I'm not going to do that. And, and if I don't want to do that, then I have to take my hands off them and, and just leave them there. They're not my response. It's not my business. Yeah. You know, just leave it there. Yeah. And uh, that's really that. So I keep, I try to keep myself really in my, on my own side of the road and uh, do what I can to be of service mm -hmm. and answer all of his questions as best I can, but mm -hmm. not, um, not give any advice. And, um, and that seems to work pretty well. Oh, very good. Well, thank you so much, Tammy. I really do appreciate you coming on my channel and being willing to share. I mean, I know you've probably told this story a lot, but I think if it helps one person out there today that maybe gets um, some horrible news and, um, you know, you want to find out how to maybe get through it, Tammy, uh, Tammy's story and lessons are a definite thing to kind of listen to. Absolutely. You know, when I was really, really, really ill, I asked God, if he let me live, I would share. And so that's why I'm here. So thank, thank you, you very thank much. You and thank God. Thank God. <laughs> that's, right. Yes. <laughs> that's right. Yes. And if you guys like this video, please leave a comment below and hit the like button. And don't forget to subscribe and hit the bell to be alerted when the next video drops. Thank you again, Tammy. Thanks for your work. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye.